Christianity. And I want to begin with an invitation to think about something critically. If you were to fill in the blank here, the first thing that comes to your mind, it's not Christmas without... Now be honest with yourself. Be honest about what really comes to your mind, okay? Don't immediately think of some churchy religious answer if that's your tendency. That's not helpful. Think what's really true. How do you know it's Christmas? What's the thing that you celebrate regularly, commemorate maybe with your family, or it's a ritual, a tradition? What, it's, it's not Christmas without this thing. Maybe the best way to think of this is in your own head, think like, this, this is the one thing that I'm looking forward to at Christmas. This is the thing I'm really putting my hopes in. I'm really excited about this thing happening at Christmas. Now let's read together, beginning in verse 28 of 1 John chapter 2. And now, little children, abide that is remain in him, so that when he that is Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. My prayer is that God would bless the reading and teaching of his words and that it would become more than just ink on a page and it would become life and light to us. You see, when John wants to answer for us this question, what is Christmas? What really is the reason for the season, as it were? What is the cause for celebration? What is the thing that we are commemorating every single December? What's the thing that we're remembering 
or calling to the front of our intention? What's the thing that we're celebrating and building our calendars and our, our, our different memories and traditions around? This is what John says. It's not Christmas without destruction. It's not Christmas without destruction. Did you catch it right in the middle of there? Two different times it said that the reason that the Son of God appeared was first to take sins away, and then secondly, it says the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason that we celebrate Jesus coming to be with us and for us is that God wanted to destroy something. God wanted something removed. Now, maybe one of the best ways to begin to think about this as well is, what's the thing that robs you of joy the most? What's the thing? What's the thing that, that seems to, on a consistent basis, draw you into discouragement, into depression, into despair? What's the thing that really brings out your own despair? What's that thing? What's the thing that robs you of joy the most? I want you to make a mental note of that because we'll come back to it. As John tells us here, we, we find this beautiful picture of what it looks like to be a Christian, to be a person of the light in a dark world, to be a person who anticipates the return of Jesus, that we will become like Jesus. And smack dab in the middle of this reflection is a picture of why Jesus came, what it is that we celebrate every single Christmas, that God is doing something. And here's what I want to maybe propose to you. You see, several years ago, an epic war drama was released. It was directed by Steven Spielberg, and it was entitled Saving Private Ryan. Now, I mention this because in 2014, this film was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry and by the Library of Congress for being, I quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Up to this point, there has never been, up to that point when, it, when this movie was released, there had never been a more lifelike reenactment of what we know as D-Day. That is when... The Allied forces landed on Omaha Beach at Normandy that signaled their entrance into World War II. There's a 27-minute opening scene. 27 minutes. That's a depiction of that, that assault landing on Omaha Beach. There's a picture there, more graphic than anyone had ever seen up to this point, which is why it became so critically acclaimed. It's not for everyone. I don't necessarily recommend you go watch this. But up to that point, it's the most lifelike depiction of a landed invasion that anyone's ever seen. And in a sense, it's the most graphic and realistic reminder of what that landed invasion looks like. And what I want to encourage you to think about, what I want to challenge in your thinking, is that it's possible, it's possible, I think, that Christmas has more in common with the Normandy invasion than it has in common with your average nativity. Don't miss that. John tells us that Christmas actually has more in common with the Normandy invasion than it has in common with the average nativity. 
Now, just side note, you see this in the nativity scene. There's a whole bunch of stuff in the nativity scene, and most of them that, oh, by the way, are not even in the Bible. <laughs> They're not that way. We, we just don't have it that way. And so even in a more realistic sense, the Bible doesn't even teach us that Christmas is what the average nativity scene is. And I encourage you, this might be a Where's Waldo of sorts, this week, read Luke chapter 1, 2, and 3, read the first few chapters of Matthew, and then find out what Christmas is. And if you're really having fun in your Where's Waldo for Christmas, read the Gospel of John and see what John tells us about the birth of Jesus. Read the Gospel of Mark and see what the Gospel of Mark tells us about the birth of Jesus. And you'll come to find out that the nativity is actually so amazing that Mark and John don't even tell us about it. And the Gospel of Matthew, the birth of Jesus, is like a verse and a half. And instead, what we see, the telling of Jesus' birth, is a story, a depiction on a regular basis throughout the Gospels of warfare. That is, it's possible that Christmas for us, actually, even in the Bible, and especially in, in, a, in a specifically biblical way here in 1 John chapter 3, Christmas has more in common with that day than it has with your average nativity. Christmas, as we celebrate it, is more a call to be gathered like this, to join in a landed invasion, to join in Jesus' great work to destroy the works of the devil for good. This may mean that, I don't know if you see this, like this, this, this boat landing full of troops. Uh, th this might change the way you think of Christmas caroling. Right? It might be that Christmas caroling, which I'm not particularly a fan of, has more in common with a boat full of people joining in this landed invasion of Jesus to put death to death and destroy the works of the devil. It might have more in common with a boat landing in Normandy. Well, where do I get this? Well, John tells us in, in pretty radical form the story of the entire Bible right here is that God is doing something when he sends Jesus to be with us that is actually a story that's being told from the beginning of the Bible. And so I want to, for the next couple of minutes, I want to run through this the best I can. So at the very beginning of the story, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God builds this whole thing, designs it, lays it out, and it's perfect, it's good, and there's order and not to the kind of order, don't think of like someone who's got a list of rules and they're, like they're exercising and you know, some sort of micromanagement. Think of, think of the rules that keep you in good health, right? The stop sign that keeps other people from plowing into you, right? And God created this and the words described there we would call shalom or peace. And there's this beautiful order. And God even put some people in here in the, as the crowning achievement of this orderly and beautiful, life-giving, vibrant and fruitful world. And something happened. A serpent enters into chapter 3, a created creature, a creature that was, it says, more crafty than anything else. And while God gave this created order to be held in trust to the, the, the man and woman, these people who were going to live and serve one another, they're going to love and care for one another, they had dominion over all the creatures, there was a creature who hated that order and threw, threw and pushed back against that order to throw off that order, rebellion is what he wanted to start. And that's why, if you'll notice, the way we talk about this is we use the word sin. Literally, the word sin just means to miss the mark. But there's something specific about the word sin that's important for us. And this is why we use it. It's not a word you would use very often, right? We, other than in religious circumstances, we wouldn't say it a lot. But sin gives us an understanding of wrongdoing. It gives us a picture 
of the parties involved, who's in authority, and who has jurisdiction. Let me put it this way. If you wrong a basketball player, it's called what? A foul. If you wrong a football player, it's a penalty. If you wrong or transgress against the government, it's called a crime. If you wrong the faithfulness of a spouse, it's called adultery. You get the picture? You get the picture? The the term is important because it says who is involved, the parties involved, who's in authority, who's the offender, and who has jurisdiction over it. And we believe that if you wrong God, if you literally trespass or, or encroach upon God's holy territory, we call that sin. So don't be afraid of that word. It's simply a, a word that the Bible uses to make clear what we're talking about. Because after all, like if you wrong a basketball player, it's not a crime, right? You don't go to jail for it. It's important to know the difference. Right? If, you, if, you, if you commit one of these things, in fact, if you wrong a football player, may, I don't think, but it's not necessarily a sin. It's not a transgression against God. You get the picture? And so when we say sin, and when we say that the enemy has been sinning from the beginning, as we saw in chapter 3, and that Jesus has come to remove sin, he's talking about something specific. And it goes all the way to back to Gen- Genesis 3. And a rebellion that as God entrusted care of the entire garden to the man and to the woman, there was an enemy underneath there was an animal who instead of enjoying god's dominion and enjoying god's rule over him through the man and the woman he rebelled and that sin we saw here in chapter three is what he calls lawlessness it's an overthrowing of god's good order and so then we see what was created good all of a sudden turned sour and the one command we talk about this regularly right to adam and eve you had one job You had one job, stay away from the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And the enemy comes and says, did that really, is that really your one job? Is that really the most important thing? Is God really going to do this? And instead of loving and enjoying God's good created order, they rebel against it. And all things start to go crazy, right? We see first, the first brokenness is, is between the men and the women, right? One of the first things that happened, like God, God says to, to the man here, care for things, and he grants him a perfectly complimentary helper and says, like, look, love and cherish and care for this person and work together, and she'll be your, your necessary fulfillment. And what happens? Instead of seeing her as a partner, as soon as sin enters it, what does he do? He abdicates his responsibility. He abdicates his leadership and throws everybody else under the bus. Takes no responsibility. God comes back into the garden. He's like, hey, what happened? Didn't I tell you to do this? And what does the man said? And saying like, oh, I'm, you know, forgive me, God, I've led us into sin. What does he say? It was the woman. Oh, not only that, it was the woman that you gave me. It's her fault and vicariously your fault. You guys work it out. I'll be over here. And you see this brokenness already. And there's enmity and brokenness and chaos where there once was order, where there once was beauty and peace. There becomes conflict. And the enemy, ultimately, invites us to join him in the rebellion. And the same way that he invited Adam and Eve to to join him in rebelling against God's peace and order, he invites us to do the same. But I want you to see something powerful here. I want you to see something amazing. Even in Genesis chapter 3, and and right there in verse 14, we find something pretty powerful. It says, The Lord God 
said to the serpent, after they've all kind of rebelled and he's sorting things out, he says something. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says something else. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now this is interesting. Up to this point, he's spoken to the man and to the woman as, as a unit or, or specifically as the man, as kind of like the vicarious servant. But, but he's, he says something specific to the woman, and this is powerful for us in Christmas. He says, I'm going to put strife or enmity, conflict between you, that is the devil, the enemy, and the woman. And between your offspring, literally seed, and her offspring, literally seed. And then with a, I don't know if you notice this, look, there's a, a singular male pronoun used here. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now don't miss that. He says something. He's something powerful specifically to the woman, and then he goes out of his way to say something really weird. He hasn't spoken to the woman this way yet, or of the woman in this particular way yet, and then he speaks to the, to the devil and says, this is what's going to happen, and then he says, between your seed and her seed. Now, you don't typically speak of women as having seed, and if that is confusing, I talk to, ask your parents about that. Um, ask your gospel community leader about that. They would love to help answer that for you. But, but it's safe to say no one talks about women in that way. And then to speak of that, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He, the seed of the, apparently of the devil, will attack the heel of this woman and this woman's seed shall bruise or crush his head. Don't miss that. The rebellion started. The enemy wants to draw people into rebellion. And God's great solution, this is known by the early church fathers as the proto-evangelium. That is the proto-gospel. The first gospel spoken all the way in the beginning. And his, they, the, the solution to this conflict, did you catch it? It's going to be a boy. You see, something's going on here and God's great solution is going to send in a hero. He's going to send in a hero who's going to come in and he's going to crush the head of the enemy of God's people. You see this over and over again. This is what's powerful. Even as Jesus is born, this, this plays out again. right? If you read the Gospel of Luke, it's just this great, big, happy account. But if you read the Gospel of Matthew and the story of Jesus being born, you'll see it. You, begin, you see what happens. When, whenever, whenever, whenever Jesus is born, what happens after that? It scares some people, and the story we don't like to tell is that Herod, the, the, the local ruler, when he found out that there was a king being born, he was terrified of that boy. And so he went and he ordered the execution of every male child in Bethlehem. Do you get it? Do you see the convoy? you see this? you see the war? you see the war being waged here? Jesus being sent right into it? You even see this in the Magnificat. In, in the Gospel of Luke, Mary sings a song, right? And he says she's going she's to have joy in the arm of the Lord. She's quoting uh, the words that we would see in the prophet Isaiah at least 15 different times where the deliverance that God will give to his people will be in the arm of the Lord. Now, you have to understand what, when God shows his arms, he's not like some narcissistic or, or like insecure bodybuilder flexing in the mirror. When God flexes his muscles, things get destroyed. Things get crushed. And what does Mary find her hope in? The arm of the Lord. 
In fact, this conflict you see even evident in the name Jesus. The angel comes and says to Joseph, no, you're not allowed to name this boy. He's not yours. This boy will be named Jesus because literally he will deliver, he will save his people from their sin. And what is saving if not rescuing someone from impending doom? You see this picked up all, all throughout. This is why when Jesus begins his ministry, the first thing that happens is what? He goes out into the wilderness and, and who, who comes after him? The devil begins to tempt him, wants to lead him in rebellion against God. And the devil is so desperate to stop what Jesus is doing that he offers him everything. Just think about that. The, the best thing that the enemy, the devil, will offer you is maybe some sort of temptation, some temporary distraction, right? Hey, worship this idol for a little while or, or, or pursue, I don't know, look at this image or look at this inappropriate thing for a few minutes and get pleasure from it and distract you from the glory of God. And, and that's about the best the enemy will offer you or me. But what happens when he is out in the wilderness? The enemy says to Jesus, I'll give you everything you see, everything Everything you could possibly see, I'll give to you if you will just stop doing what you're doing. You see it? See the bargaining and the bribing going on? And they have this comment back and forth, and Jesus starts quoting Deuteronomy. And everywhere Jesus goes, Jesus, as he, as he walks away from that temptation, goes, the first place he goes into is to the synagogue, and he reads the prophet Isaiah, and he says, look, look, something's going to happen, and he quotes what we would quote on a regular basis at Christmas, that look, the Lord has anointed me to come and preach the good news to the poor, and to declare the release of the captives. And then he goes, and he engages in a massive campaign of destruction against evil. He heals people who are sick. All that's broken, he begins to repair. People who have been cast out, people who are marked by shame, he gives them dignity and value. People who are, who are rattled with guilt because they've betrayed and done wrong things, he exalts and calls them friend. And he starts to do this amazing sabotage against the kingdom of darkness. In fact, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, we live currently in enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is now calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And all that is broken that Jesus begins to heal, he invites us to declare as well. So much so that something powerful happens in Matthew chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and even be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, this is his friend, this is his disciple. What does he say? Peter takes him. This is, this is a beautiful picture, right? Peter putting his arm around Jesus and pulling him aside to correct Jesus. Took him aside and then he began to, read that word, rebuke him. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I, I don't know if you've ever rebuked Jesus. I regularly do it. Right? Surely not, Lord. Right? That's what he tells us in, 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 in the book of Acts. And he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus is like, I've got to go to the cross. I've got to do this thing. I've got to pay a ransom. There's a conflict and there's a war being waged and I've got to win it to save people. And he says, far be it from you to do this thing. And what does he do? 
What does Jesus do? He turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice what Jesus did. Did you you catch the language of warfare? He looked at Peter and he saw right through Peter all the way to the author of that statement of denying crosses and, and desiring that Jesus would not do what he came to do. He saw right past them and said, get behind me, Satan. You get it? This is a landed invasion. Jesus has come to do something. He says in John chapter 12, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 16, he says it again, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, why? Why is there judgment? Because the ruler of this world has been judged. That is, the devil has been condemned. Colossians 2 tells us this, that and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh made God alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is a powerful picture we see throughout the New Testament that Paul tells us that when Jesus wins, it's like a triumph. I encourage you to Google this. A Roman triumph was a procession where the coming king would come and they would share literally the gospel, the good news, as this word was originally used, the good news of Rome's victory. And they would come back in in triumphal procession. And the king would be in the front on a white horse or on a chariot being pulled by a white horse. And behind him at some point, they would bring along the defeated and vanquished king or the defeated and vanquished general, either by dragging his dead body through the streets or by shaming him, stripping him naked and pulling him along. Shaming the one who had been defeated. But then behind them was... All of the people that, that that king had brought into captivity, all the people, the prisoners of war, or the people that had, had been held uh, in slavery by that king, they were all cleaned up, dressed in white, and then they were given a little piece of incense that they walked behind the defeated king, and they were waving around, and the smell of this incense was the smell of victory. Look what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 about Jesus and this landed invasion, the victory of our coming king. But thanks be to God who in Christ does What? always leads us in triumphal procession. Remember then, and the people who were set free were carrying their incense to commemorate that they are now free, they're no longer captive. And what does it say? It says, and through us, right? This is us, the people carrying the incense, being set free, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance of death to death, right? If you were vanquished, if you've been defeated, if you were on the enemy and you smelled that, that wasn't good. But for the others, people set free as a fragrance from life to life. Don't miss this. Don't, don't miss what John is telling us about this Christmas season. While the enemy is inviting us to join in this great rebellion, Jesus invites us to join him in his triumphal procession over the enemy. While the enemy wants us to rebel against this good And gracious and righteous God, Jesus invites us to celebrate the defeat of that enemy. Remember what I asked you? Remember what I asked you? What is the thing that robs you of joy the most? What's that thing? What if I told you that under that thing, the root of that thing, that that despair, 
that hopelessness, that frustration? What if I told you that in this current broken world, the, the root of that brokenness is at the top of the list of things that Jesus has come to destroy? What if I told you that thing that's robbing you of joy right now, Jesus has disarmed and he will one day shame and he will drag behind us and you will smell like a person set free from that thing. Friend, Jesus has come to do something. He has come to destroy the thing that the enemy wants to use to rob you of joy. He wants to restore peace. So here's where I want to end. I want to tell you a story. Strange, in this case, Christmas story, if you will. I'm going to tell you a story, and I'll warn you, there's parts of this story that are a legend. And I'll, I'm not sure parts of this story, I'm not, what really, I'm not sure what really happened. I have a brother, his name is Zeb, right? Named after one of the 12 tribes of Judah, Zebulun. You knew that, I know. And my brother is about the same height as me, so we're all pretty, pretty tall people. He's both 6'3", but he outweighs me by about 100 pounds. I mean, he's always been bigger than me. He's always just been big and strong. And God's really blessed him and me. Is we've always been really good in athletics. And my brother, as good as he was at some of these sports, went through a, a period of time uh, that we call puberty, and it was pretty rough on him. Now, my brother's one of the most lovable people you'll ever meet. Like, just no, one, no one's mad at him, right? There's just very few people. Everyone loves him. He's so lovable. No one, no one hates him, except for one person. You see, while my brother was going through this awkward stage, right, I mean, he had big, ugly glasses. Um, it was probably why I, like, acted like I could, I, I waited till later to actually admit that I couldn't read the, the chalkboard because I didn't want to be, st I thought they were just going to give me big, ugly glasses, and my brother had some big, ugly glasses. He was kind of a, kind of a chubby guy and, and, you know, pretty lovable. And there was a guy by the name of Ashton. We called him Ash. Now, you got to understand here this is before Ashton Kutcher came along and made that name cool um at then it was just a strange name and he went by Ash and if you really wanted to provoke him you would call him Ashley you know what I'm talking about and my brother lovable as he was did some things to Ash and in several different sports my brother would beat him now Ash was kind of a pretty boy I mean you already knew that his name's Ash and the worst thing for the pretty boy who really wants and starves for everyone's approval is when the kind of the, the dumpy kid with the ugly glasses beats you in sports and publicly shames you. And Ash hated my brother. Hated him. So much so that Ash got it in his mind that he was going to fight my brother. He's going to fight him. Now here's where the legend starts. I asked several people for what really happened. My brother never really told me. I had to get it from people who were there and saw it. So at some point, like, Ash spreads the rumor, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat up Zeb. Okay, I'm going to fight him because he had been shamed by him on a regular basis on the, on, in sports and all sorts of other stuff, right? So, so I'm going to fight. Starts the rumor. You know, I mean, if you remember, this is middle, middle school, right? I'm going to fight that guy. Oh, he's going to fight him. And somewhere, I don't know if it was in a hallway or it was outside the locker room. It was in the magic, you know, dead zone where there's no coaches or teachers or supervision, yeah, yeah. And so all that was left was like, again, I, just other students that told me about what happened. So what happened is Ash comes after my brother, and he comes in swinging. Now my brother, who's lovable, doesn't punch people, right? 
He's a, he's a teddy bear. He's not going to hit anybody. And so something happened. Apparently, Ash went in swinging. I, some people said he got a few hits in, and some people said he didn't. And whatever happened next is somehow my brother put Ash on the ground. There, again, there's four different accounts of how my brother got him on the ground. And basically, and this is the words that were used, sat on him. <laughs> so like body slammed him, held him on the ground, and held him down <laughs> while he fought in front of everybody. So a year or two later, whenever I, it's hard for me to tell, a year or two later, when I started playing athletics, about two years behind him, I started to play against Ash. And Ash hated me. Hated me. When he was pitching, I, I was sure to get hit. Um, and I, he hated me. And he was against me, and he wanted to ruin me. He hated me. And there were two things that became very profoundly true as I became aware of them. And the first is this. The reason he hated me is that every time he looked at me, I reminded him of the one who publicly shamed him. Every time he looked at me, he, rem- he was reminded of that one that humble one, right? Not the, not the pretty boy, the, the, the lovable guy with the ugly glasses who publicly, unexpectedly shamed him. And he hated me for it. John tells us here that in Christ, when we look to him, we start to look like him. And this starts to make us look different in the world. And this means that the enemy hates people who start to look like him. But don't miss the good news, friends. Jesus comes as a landed invasion and a victorious king and even though the enemy wants to kill you and destroy you i know you're bringing all sorts of things to the table this christmas i want to encourage you the reason he hates you the reason there are difficult things in the world because he hates you so much every time he looks at you he's reminded of the one who publicly shamed him there's something else that was true i learned second thing ash was a dangerous person he was much bigger and stronger than i was but I learned something really powerful. Whenever I was around my brother, Ash wouldn't touch me. And Ash, for all his threats, knew that if I was ever close to my brother, he couldn't lay a finger on me. I could if I wanted to, according to legend, do what my brother did and call him Ashley. I just thought of that. I don't know why I didn't. And Ash knew that he couldn't do a thing as long as I was near the one who had publicly shamed him. Friend, don't miss this good news of Christmas. Don't don't settle for the lesser thing. You're in this room and you probably either are just really love the sentimentality or nostalgia of Christmas, and I want to rob that from you. I want to tell you there's something bigger and there's something deeper. There's a war waged against you and all of God's people, and Jesus has been victorious in that war. And he parades us in front of the enemy in triumphal procession. But for the rest of you, maybe you're just a Grinch and you hate Christmas. I want to encourage you as well. It's better than you think. Our coming king has landed. The invasion has been victorious. The end of the devil's reign has been announced in Jesus. Don't miss it. Doesn't that change the way you celebrate Christmas? Doesn't that change the kind of gifts you exchange at Christmas? 
Doesn't that even change what you think makes Christmas what it is? Remember where we started? It's not Christmas without what? And I would encourage you, what if, what if for the people of God who have been set free from the captivity that the enemy had over us, that we see the end of sin and death when we see Jesus come? What if it's not really Christmas unless we're celebrating the destruction of the devil? What if we're the people that every single Christmas we celebrate differently because we know that our king has come and shamed our enemy? Wouldn't that change the way we celebrate it? So in response to that, here's what we're going to do. Uh, in just a moment here, we're going to, we're going to respond uh, in a couple of ways. The first thing we're going to do is that we're going to uh, invite the ushers to come and they're going to take up this morning's offering. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to, as C.S. Lewis has said, we're going to jump in this great campaign of sabotage. And as we give, we're giving to see the gospel go to the nations so that people who have never heard that there is hope, they have never heard that there is a king who has defeated death, hell, and that, that, that king has come to set them free and set them free from captivity. We want to invest in that. And so in a very tangible way, we are partnering in giving and in financial generosity, the peeling back of the darkness amongst the nations. And we're going to have an offering in just a moment. And then after that, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to celebrate it in a powerful way. Paul tells the Corinthians that every time we drink of the cup and every time that we partake of the bread, we declare Jesus' death our Lord's death, until he returns. And so something's going to happen in a moment here. As we, we're going to be invited to stand, and then as we're ready, we're going we're to work our way towards the back over here behind me, or behind you to my right and to your left. There'll be a gluten-free option as well, but somebody, you're going to go back there as you're ready, you're going to go back and, and someone's going to declare to you a gospel, a good news, a victorious king. And as you pass by, they'll break off a piece of bread and say something powerful. And it won't be a quote from, I don't know, Santa Claus or Rudolph. It'll be the language of warfare and victory. And someone will break off a piece of bread and say, the body of Christ, broken for you. And you'll take that bread and you'll, you'll dip it into a cup where someone will declare more good news of God's victory in Christ, the blood of Christ, poured out for you. Now, if you're in this room and you're not a believer, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, uh, then I'm going to encourage you, just stand with us, sing, celebrate the gospel in song. Don't, don't drink condemnation on yourself. It would be a, a terribly unsatisfying morsel of food. It's like a snack that doesn't satisfy. But for those of us who smell the aroma of Christ's victory, a strange mystery will take place. As we meet Jesus at the table, someone will offer us a piece of bread and a little bit of juice as we dip it in, and it will be, in a powerful, miraculous way, the most satisfying thing you can imagine. That the devil doesn't win. The enemy doesn't have victory. But instead, Christ and his body and his blood does. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you for your victory over all that prevails against us. I thank you that you have settled once and for all. You have completely eradicated the power that the enemy has over us. And you have publicly shamed him. And you've taken his accusations against us. 
accusations of curses, and you've nailed them to the cross. Such that now any accusation that is against us, we see only in light of what you've done for us in Jesus. God, may our, may our Christmas celebrations be congruent with this. May we really celebrate the coming of our King, a miraculous and scandalous coming, one that wasn't received or welcomed, one that didn't come with any fanfare, but instead one that came in humility so that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are not a God that is up there and out there, but you are a God who humbles himself to be with us and for us and like us. We have a high priest that can sympathize with us, that now intercedes for us. Not from a position of superiority, but from a position of having laid down that superiority to be like us, to be fully human on our behalf. We thank you for that king and we thank you for his victory. Now we, we delight as in victorious procession as we celebrate this Christmas the landed invasion that is victorious on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.